Welcome to the podcast of Grace Community Bible Church. We hope and pray that you are blessed, challenged, and inspired by this message. For other sermons or more information, visit us at gracebiblechurch.org.au. Now, the past week, um, we've looked at Abraham and how God came to Abraham and reaffirmed the covenant with Abraham. And we saw particularly last week the, the human responsibility when one is in covenant relationship with God and uh, particularly in the, uh, in the act of circumcision and all that it meant. And we also saw that last week Abraham was acting in full obedience to God. That he was exercising faith and he was showing himself as one who had a circumcised heart as one who had a new heart, as one who had a heart that was devoted only to God, which was expressed in his immediate obedience to God by way of circumcision. And this morning, the passage that we'll look at is an interesting passage. It's a passage where the Lord himself will visit Abraham And what we see, uh, let me just say just at the up front, you know, in verses 1 to 15, the big picture is this, where God reveals himself that he is in close relationship with, with Abraham, and it is in light of that he is reaffirming his promises that he will indeed bring about what he has promised. And he's doing that not just to build up Abraham's faith, but he's doing that also to build up Sarah's faith. What we saw already in Genesis 17, Abraham's faith is being built up. You know, he's come a long way from when he came out from uh, Ur and from Haran, where he's had his ups and downs. Many years have passed, and the Lord is bit by bit building up his faith. And even when, at first, he doubted God, even in Genesis 17, when God said he's going to actually have a son in his old age, we see that ultimately he believed. So he's strengthened in his faith now. But the Lord is still not yet done. He wants to continue to build his faith and to build the faith of Sarah. And I pray that as we listen this morning, we will be reminded again of this same God and the kind of relationship that we have with him and that his promises are true even for us and that we should, as a result, continue to be strengthened in our faith. I've titled this morning's sermon as um, God visits Abraham and uh, by way of outline I've just got two points. In verses 1 through 8, we're going to look at the intimacy of God's presence. And in verses 9 through 15, uh, we're going to look at the certainty of God's promise. The intimacy of God's presence and the certainty of God's promise. Look at verse 1 with me. It says there, the, the Lord appeared to him, that's talking about Abraham, appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. 
So Lord, the Lord had just appeared to Abraham before while he was reaffirming and reassuring and strengthening Abraham's faith. Now that Abraham has circumcised himself and he has circumcised all the males in his household, soon after the Lord appears to Abraham again. And it says that Abraham is by the oaks of Memre. Now if you remember in Genesis 13 verse 18, we saw that this oaks of Memre, that's in Hebron, it's the place where Abraham built an altar to the Lord and, and worshipped the Lord. It's the place where he moved his tent and really settled there after he separated from Lot. So this is where Abraham's home is for now. This is where he's settled in his tent in Hebron by the Oaks of Mamre. And it says that Abraham was by the Oaks of Mamre sitting at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. Now, in that Middle Eastern climate, you know, it gets very hot during noontime and even a bit after. For, you know, those of you who've been to the Middle East or have grown up in the Middle East, I, I'm, you know, very much know this, having grown up in the Middle East, that especially during those long summer months, it is very, very hot during the noontime and a little after that. And this time is, is usually a time when people take a break from their work, especially if they're working outside. You know, and they usually have lunch, they even uh, have a rest before they resume work once the heat subsides down a little bit. So it's that time of the day around noontime, and Abraham is resting under the shades of the... Uh, of the trees in front of this tent. Perhaps he's even nodding off a little bit. And then when all of a sudden, three men appear before him. Look at verse 2. It says, He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. So Abraham is resting because it's the hottest part of the day. And then he looks up and he sees these three men standing not too far from him. Now in those days, you know, travelers, they didn't have restaurants to, you know, walk into for food or, you know, hotels to go and lodge and take a rest or anything of that sort. You know, you'd have to go to someone's house. And so seeing these travelers who have stopped by in front of Abraham's tent, Abraham has a, has a heart to want to serve them and be hospitable to them. Now just a note with regards to these three men. I mean, there's certainly uh, some ambiguity with regards to these three men, even as you read chapter 18 and uh, chapter 19. But verse 10 of Genesis 18, Genesis 18.10 indicates that one of them is Yahweh himself, the Lord God himself. And then Genesis 19.1 indicates that the other two men were angels. So you've got the Lord God and you've got two angels who've come to visit Abraham and they've come in human form. Now, the text doesn't explicitly say when Abraham figured out, you know, who these men were. But what we can say is this. At some point, 
he did figure it out. Because in verse 10, when it says uh, that the Lord, when the Lord says, I will come back next year this time and your wife will have a son, Abraham is not shocked thinking, oh wow, this, this is Yahweh my Lord. No, no, he doesn't flinch. Uh, he, he's not surprised. In fact, I would say that even from the start, however, so we don't know exactly when Abraham figured out that this is God who's in his presence and who's come to sup with him. But I would say at the very least that even from the start, Abraham understood that there was something special about these three men. Notice the rest of the last part of verse 2 and then verse 3. So when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Now remember, Abraham is the patriarch of a pretty large clan of people at this point, you know, numbering more than a thousand people. And if you remember from Genesis 14, he's also this kingly warrior figure who defeated all the powerful enemy kings of the east, all the Mesopotamian kings. And then even there we saw in Genesis 14 when he was before King Melchizedek, the king of Jerusalem or Salem as it was called in those days. And Abraham gave a tenth of everything that he had, recognizing that Melchizedek is more superior to me. You don't see Abraham bowing down to Melchizedek. But in the picture in Genesis 18, Abraham senses something of the greatness of these men. And so as he sees them, he runs to them and he even bows down to them. And he says, please don't pass by your servant. You know, that, that, that's a, you know, a subordinate person talking to a superior saying, to your servant, hey, please don't pass by me. That's not this big kingly warrior. He wouldn't be doing that to any of the other kings around. And so Abraham pleads with these men to stay for some refreshment and some rest. Look at verses 4 and 5. He says, Let a little water be brought, and wash your feet, and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread, that you may refresh yourself, and after that you may pass on, since you have come to your servant. So they said, Do as you have said. So here, here's the thing. You know, when you're traveling in the desert, your feet are going to get dirty. It's sand and mud everywhere. And so Abraham is saying, hey, I'll, I'll get you some water to wash and clean your feet. And then you can rest comfortably under these oak trees. And I'll bring you something small to eat, like a, uh, you know, like a small piece of bread or something like that. So you can be refreshed and then you can be on your way. Please, please give me this privilege of serving you this way. Don't, don't pass by a servant till I can serve you this way. And so then the guests agree to Abraham's offer of 
hospitality. Now, I don't know if at this point, with just that interaction itself, if Abraham's figured out, oh, I now understand who these men are. I don't know if he knows it as yet. But again, I would say at the very least, he knows that these are not just regular passerbys. These are not just ordinary guests. No, these are people who are much greater than him, and he wants to give them the honor that is due them, even in the way he's going to be hospitable to them. You know, Abraham essentially wants to bring out the fine dining experience. You know, he wants to bring out all the, the, the fine china, all the, you know, crystal ware and whatever else, and the, you know, the best kind of food to really show men the honor that is due them. And there's even great urgency that uh, you see with Abraham because he doesn't want to keep these important people waiting. He really wants to serve them well. Look at verse 6. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, Quick, three sears of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. See, at this point, once the guests have agreed, Abraham, this 99-year-old man, is now running along like a headless chook. And so first he runs to his wife who's in the tent and says, quickly make some flat bread from fine flour. Not any flour, but I I want the finest flour here. And the three sears of fine flour, that's roughly, it would amount to about 22 liters of fine flour. That's a lot of flour. So we're talking about making a lot of bread, way more than just what three people would require. And then verse 7, And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to the young man who prepared it quickly. So next he runs to the herd and And even though he's got so many servants, Abraham himself, he personally selects the the choicest of uh, calves, the most tender, the, the best calf there is. And he gives it to his servant to prepare it quickly. And again, think a whole calf. I mean, this is not some small little lamb or just a little pigeon or something like that. We're talking about a whole calf. Again, so much meat than what three people would require. So Abraham is really going all out here. And then verse 8 says, Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them, and he stood by them under the tree while they ate. Now the curds here, I think it's probably uh, what's called as labne uh, right now in the Middle East. You know, it's this creamy, yogurty, cheese kind of thing that you get from milk. Yes, uh, Eddie's putting his hand up, you know. If you've been to Eddie's house, or those of you who are from the Middle East, you would understand. It, it's kind of like a cream cheese sort of thing that you put on flat bread and you just eat it. 
And then so, uh, so what you have is now Abraham, he's got a ton of hot bread. Then he's got a whole tender calf that's, that's cooked well. And then you've got this, this cream cheese yogurty spread for the bread. And then you've got some cold milk. And he's, he's brought all this for the guests. And then notice what it says there. He brings it to the guests, and specifically it says that he stood by there while they ate. You know, you can almost, you know, in modern times, you can almost think of, you know, Abraham standing there with a, maybe a towel by the side or something at your services. You know, just ready to serve his guests. And what you see here certainly is on the one side that Abraham is a great example of someone who shows hospitality. In fact, the author of Hebrews in Hebrews 13.2 probably is referencing Abraham's hospitality uh, when he's speaking there. When he says, you know, to show hospitality and some have even unawares been hospitable to angels. And the thought there, what the author of Hebrews is saying is that as Christians, we are called to show this Christian love by being hospitable even to people that we've just met for the first time. And, we, and when we think about hospitality, you know, and we looked at this a bit when we when we are going through First Peter 4 when, and when we talked about hospitality. See, it isn't so much about you know, having the cleanest house. It isn't so much about having everything spick and span and having the best meal, even though Abraham did have a very lavish meal out for his guests. But the focus in hospitality, the focus is on caring for the needs of the guests whether it's in the form of food or a place to stay or even just having a listening ear. That's the focus of hospitality. And Abraham exemplifies that kind of hospitality because he recognizes something of the greatness of these men and he recognizes they need rest, they need food, and I want to honor them and I want to cater to their needs and that's exactly what he does. Hospitality always needs to be focused on the needs of the guests. And this is the kind of hospitality what every believer, every Christian should emulate. And it's a way of showing the love of God to others. But beyond that, there is certainly an element of that. But beyond that, I want you to think for a moment who has come to eat a meal with Abraham. It is the Lord God, the creator of the universe. That's who's come to have a meal with Abraham. You know, the interesting thing is, even as a few commentators have pointed out, this is the only instance prior to the incarnation, prior to the Son of God coming down as Jesus Christ, 
This is the only instance prior to that where God comes down in the form of a man and eats with a human being. Yes, there are other times in the Old Testament where God will appear to man and they will offer sacrifices to him, but this is the only instance where prior to the incarnation where God actually shares a meal with a man. I mean, think of it for a moment. Let's say we were, you know, we had, we were living under a monarchy and the king of the country or somebody that important comes and visits you in your home. And so then you, you have a fine meal together and the king discloses his heart to you and what his plans are and specifically how you are going to be part of that plan. And there's a sense in which you recognize then, hey, I'm a friend of the king now because I know his heart and he's revealed his heart to me. You know, that's the kind of picture here with Abraham where the Lord of the universe has come to have a meal with Abraham. The picture is showing that this great God has condescended and come toward Abraham. Yes, Abraham has had his ups and downs, but the Lord has drawn near to Abraham. He is close to Abraham. And he would soon reveal his heart to Abraham once again in this context. And in this sense, Abraham is truly a friend of God. You know, interestingly, Abraham is the only person in the Old Testament who's given the title as friend of God. You see that in 2 Chronicles 20 verse 7. And even Isaiah 41.8 says the same thing, where Abraham is given that title as friend of God. In fact, even James will also pick this up in the New Testament in James 2.23, where he will state that Abraham was called the friend of God. I mean, what a title, right? I mean, this is, this is significant, beloved, because... See, God could have skipped this part, if you think about it. If it was just to relay some information, God could have completely skipped this part. He doesn't need to come and have a meal with Abraham. But he did. And that is precisely to make Abraham realize the kind of intimate, close relationship he has with him. That God is not distant. That he has an intimate, close relationship with Abraham. That Abraham is indeed God's intimate friend. And you know what the wonderful thing is? This kind of relationship is enjoyed by every Christian as well. Because John 15, verses 14 to 15, this is what Jesus says to his disciples. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants. For the servant does not know what his master is doing, 
But I have called you friends for all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. See, if a person fully trusts in Jesus and follows Jesus and obeys Jesus, that's a person, we can say, who is a friend of God. It's evidence that that is a person who is a friend of God. In Abraham's case, he showed evidence that he was God's friend by showing a life of increasing obedience to God. And, and here's the thing about friends, Jesus says, that with friends, you're open with them. You, you open your heart to them. Jesus says, with my friends, I reveal myself to them. I make myself known to them. There is an intimate relationship. It's not a distant relationship like with a slave or, or with a servant. I love that. You know, I wonder if as believers we truly grasp this. That as Christians, that we're a friend of God. That we're a friend of Jesus. That we are truly in such an intimate relationship. Just think of even the, the, the relationship for one second. You've got God, the eternal God who's revealed himself in the form of Jesus Christ on the one side. And you've got us, frail humanity, on the other side. For those of us who are Christians, just, I want you to just think about this for a moment. God knows everything about us, everything about us, including the sins that you and I will commit later in this day and tomorrow and the day after that. He always knew that. Yet knowing that as well, God through Jesus Christ still chose to draw himself close to us. And then he died in our place and forgave us of all our sins. And now he has chosen to be in this close relationship to us, with us, to love us the same each and every day, no matter what. And he will never draw away from us. He will never be distant from us. And no matter what our lot in life, he will always be there for us, constantly caring for us, loving us, and making his heart and his mind known to us through his word, all for our good and for his glory. That's a privilege that he gives only to his friends. I mean, if the prime minister of this country, or somebody that important and that significant, drew close to us, and cared for us, and loved us, and you know, opened their heart and mind to us, We'd be thrilled. And we'd only want to then respond in the same way to know that person more because we realize how special that relationship is. But how much more, beloved, those of us who are Christians, this is our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Lord of all the universe. 
The Lord who knows us fully and intimately and yet has chosen to love us and to make himself known to us and call us his friends. See, what it should do is it should just stir our hearts to to know him more as we seek him in his word and in, in prayer as we commune with him this way. That there would be a zeal in us. Lord, I, I so want to know you because you know me intimately and you have drawn so close to me. And so help me to accordingly know you more and more and keep me there. And as we do that, as we grow in our knowledge of him and in our communion with him, that will in turn cause us to trust him more and rely on him more and it will cause us to follow hard after him. What is that life? That's a life of obedient faith. So that's what the Lord is doing here in Abraham's life. See, he has drawn near to Abraham, made Abraham his friend. He has revealed himself to Abraham, and he's revealed to Abraham the intimacy of this relationship. See, the Lord doesn't go to have a meal with every, everyone else in their homes. No, the Lord chose to come to Abraham's home. That's significant. For Abraham to realize, this is the Lord who has come to my home, and he doesn't go like that to everybody's home. No, he has particularly chosen to come to Abraham's home to show that he has this special close relationship with him. And so in this sense, the Lord is building up Abraham's faith so that Abraham would continue in obedient faith. So that's the intimacy of God's presence that we see in the first eight verses. In verses 9 through 15 now, we come to the certainty of God's promise. Now, in the context of this intimate meal, the Lord's going to reveal himself once again and his plan. Verse 9. They said to him, Where is Sarah, your wife? I love this. For two reasons. For one, these travelers don't just know that Abraham is married, but they also know his wife's name the very name that the Lord just recently gave his wife. I mean, that's, that's already giving more clues there. Hey, who is this? Who are these people? And then secondly, who, who is the there? We're talking about the Lord God and the two angels. They know exactly where Sarah is. And they still ask the question, where is Sarah? Why? Because they're drawing Sarah into the conversation now. 
And ultimately, the Lord will draw out what is in Sarah's heart, again, for the purpose of building up her faith as well. See, now in those days, in that ancient culture, the women of the house, or let's just say the the matriarch of the house, they generally wouldn't mingle with just any male visitors that would come. They would just be inside the tent. That was just part of that ancient culture. So Abraham says, last part of verse 9 and then verse 10, and he said, she's in the tent. Where's, where's Sarah? She's in the tent. Verse 10. And the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. So the Lord is saying, mark your calendar. This time next year, your wife will surely have a son. And so in one sense, the Lord is just reiterating the promise. There's nothing new that the Lord is saying here about the promise. Yes, it's been almost 25 years since God made that first promise to Abraham. 25 years. And along the way, despite Abraham's faithfulness, the Lord has not wavered in in saying the same promise in so many different ways to Abraham. Yes, there's been some clarification along the way over the years with regards to the covenant son, where God said, you know, at one point where God said, no, Abraham, it's not going to be an adopted son like Eliezer, your servant. No, it's going to be your biological son. And then later God would say, no, Abraham, it's not the son that you have through you and Hagar, your servant. It's going to be a son from you and your wife, Sarah. And in Genesis 17, God appeared to him. And also, we saw this last week where God told him that this time next year, your wife will have a son. Genesis 17, 21. And now in Genesis 18, when you look at it, as God is saying this, there's nothing new that God is saying here. Absolutely nothing new. So you might be thinking, then then what's the point? Why why is God doing that? There is actually something new. And what is new is the context of the revelation. Where the Lord has shown himself to be in this intimate relationship with Abraham. See, it's on the basis of this close relationship that I have with you, Abraham. Now I'm reiterating my promise to you that the next year you will have this son. I mean, that's really something, isn't it? It's one thing for the king to say, Oh, sometime next year, this time next year, this is going to happen to you. I will do this for you. It's quite another thing when the king comes to your home and makes you his friend, and now you have this close relationship, and the king himself says, now this time next year, I'm going to do this for you. Makes a big difference. What a huge encouragement this would have been for Abraham. That the Lord who has this intimate relationship with me is promising me this now. The Lord who has drawn near to me this way is promising me this now. 
Now, Sarah, on the other hand, she's not quite there yet with regards to trusting the Lord. Look at the last part of verse 10. It says, and Sarah so was listening to this, you know, where they first said, where is Sarah? And he said she was in the tent and then the promise that the Lord made. So Sarah is listening to this at the tent door behind him. She's inside the tent. Now the author of Genesis, he wants to emphasize now the human predicament that Abraham and Sarah were in. And so he says, particularly in verse 11, now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years, and the way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So the text says, Both of them were old, the author is emphasizing. And in case we didn't get it, he says, they're advanced in age. And then on top of that, he adds, Sarah is way past menopause. So the issue here isn't just that Sarah is barren. And there's, you know, oh, there's maybe a slim chance that she could get pregnant. No, the, the issue is that both of them are advanced in age and, it's, and Sarah is way past menopause. So it is humanly impossible for Abraham and Sarah to have a child now. It is just not possible humanly. There's not even a slim chance, at least from a human perspective. So how does Sarah respond? Verse 12. So Sarah laughed to herself saying, after I'm worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? I I want you to understand, Sarah laughing here, she's really laughing within herself. So she's not like loudly laughing, that kind of thing, but she's really having a chuckle on the inside. And as she's having a chuckle on the inside, she's even thinking to herself, I mean, in this worn out old state, she's essentially saying, there's no way I'm going to have marital intimacy with my husband and have a son. That's just not humanly possible. And so Sarah is having a laugh on the inside. Now, if you remember last week, In Genesis 17, Abraham also laughed. But Sarah's laugh here seems to be a little bit different from that. If you remember, when Abraham laughed, it was a mixture of joy and some amount of disbelief. On the one sense, it was filled with wonder and joy. It's like, oh, really, this is going to happen? And on the other side, it's like, oh, um, really, it's going to happen? But overall, there was that belief in the Lord. But Sarah, on the other hand, it's more of a cynical disbelief. There's no joy and wonder here. She's more like, no, this can't happen. It's just humanly impossible. She's, She's in complete disbelief here. And in one sense, you can't blame Sarah, right? I mean, it is humanly impossible. But the Lord's intention here now is to 
graciously draw out what is in Sarah's heart and to build up her faith as well. Look at verses 13 and 14. And the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I'm old? Is there anything too hard for the Lord? And at the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. You know, I, I find this a little funny. Uh, I was trying to picture this in my head as to what this would look like. Because what you see here is that the Lord is speaking to Abraham. And he's saying, Abraham, why did Sarah laugh? And why did she, why is she thinking that she's not going to, she's not believing? And why is she thinking that she's not going to have a child? Why did she say that? Now, Abraham's outside with the, with the three men there. And Abraham's thinking, but I didn't hear anything. You know, I didn't hear my wife laugh. I didn't hear her say anything. Um... I wonder what its face would have looked like. See, because Sarah's laughing and thinking all that was internal. It was nothing on the outside. On top of that, Sarah's not standing there. She's still behind inside the tent. She's not even there. She's close by, but she's really inside the tent. So what the Lord is doing here is the Lord is exposing what is in Sarah's heart. See, and by doing this, he's revealing himself as the Lord God because nobody would have been able to know what was inside Sarah's heart. He's the one who knows all things, including the hearts of the people. He's the one who knows our very thoughts and he knows our every sin and our every weakness. And so by By saying this, again, he's showing himself to be God. He's showing himself to be a a powerful God beyond human imagination. So now the Lord says, why does she laugh? Why does she not believe? He says, yes, it's humanly impossible, but is anything too hard for the Lord? This word here for hard, you know, it can be literally, it can be translated as, as wonderful or extraordinary or surpassing. In Jeremiah 32, 17, we read, Our Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched Um, nothing is too wonderful for you or nothing is too hard for you or nothing is too extraordinary for you. Psalm 139.14, a more familiar verse for many of us, where it says, I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. Meaning that every human being is knit together in their mother's womb in an extraordinary way. In a most humanly impossible way because no human being can make a baby like that. 
It is the work of God. It is the wonderful work of God. The extraordinary work of God. The impossible work of God. Or Isaiah 9.6 where the coming Messiah and where it says that the baby shall be called Wonderful Counselor. It's the same idea there that this coming Messiah will be one that will be able to do extraordinary things. Things that are impossible. Things that are supernatural. There is nothing too wonderful, too extraordinary, too impossible for our Lord. The Lord is powerful to bring about what is humanly impossible. Verse 15. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, no, but you did laugh. See, Sarah realizes, oh, this is the Lord, and this Lord knows what's fully in my heart. And so she's a little bit afraid, and she wants to almost cover up, and in some sense wishes she hadn't even thought that thought or laughed on the inside. And so she tries to cover it up by lying, saying, oh, I didn't laugh. And before we, you know, go down you know, putting down Sarah here. I mean, we can be just this way, right? Exactly like this. Where intellectually we might say, oh, God sees us through and through. We know that he sees us on the inside. And still there are times when we try to hide from God. When we try and cover things from God as though we can cover something from God. We can't. There's nothing that we can hide from God. He sees all things. He knows all things. He knows everything that is on our inside. And so that she doesn't cover it up, God actually, the Lord actually exposes it and says, no, you did laugh. And the scene ends abruptly and moves on where you know, the scene to Sodom takes place. So that's the last conversation. And you kind of, Think, whoa, okay, that's lasting words. <laughs> no, you did laugh. And I think the scene you know, ends so abruptly here to be a reminder to both Abraham and Sarah of their response to the promise of the birth of Isaac. Because remember, even last week we talked about it. Isaac in itself means what? He laughs. So every time Isaac's name would be mentioned, it would be a reminder to them that they doubted God, but you must trust in God alone. Why? Because now you have Isaac here. So it's meant to really build up their faith, not to tear them down, but to really build up their faith to to recognize this is the God who is wonderful, who can do wonderful things, extraordinary things, and here's proof of that. You know, if we left it here, it would seem like, oh, wow, Sarah is not doing so well. 
And yet Hebrews 11.11, just turn there. It seems to indicate that Sarah was actually built up in her faith. Because God showed his power by revealing to her what's in her heart and she recognized, oh wow, this is the Lord who can do extraordinary things, wonderful things. And she was built up in her faith and she trusted in the Lord. I love the grace of God in this. I mean, if you just read it the way it is, it looks as though she's never wavered. In fact, even if you... If you read the account of Abraham in Romans 4 and in Hebrews 11, you almost think you know, Abraham is like this superhuman who's never wavered in his faith. But wh- why is it that, that you know, the Lord himself wanted testimony of these people like this? Because it is true of them, not in the small moments of their life, But as you pan out their life and look at their life, yeah, they grew from strength to strength, from faith to faith. Yes, they had their moments of weakness, but God is saying, no, they they were strong in their faith, and you know, ultimately they, they clung on to God. These are examples of faith. And I love that about God's grace, even in that, where He uses pitiful, fallible men and women like you and me as well, then to be an example to others and to be used in the lives of others to build others' faith as well, just like he uses Abraham's faith and Sarah's faith. You know, many years after the time of Abraham and Sarah, The angel Gabriel will appear to a young teenage virgin girl named Mary, where the angel Gabriel will say that the Messiah, yes, the the, the king of kings who's going to come down in the form of a human being, that is going to be born through you, Mary. And so young Mary is perplexed and she asks, how is this humanly possible, Lord? Because since I'm a virgin, I mean, talk about taking impossibility to, to the, the highest level. It's not just barrenness or old age or you know, beyond menopause. We're talking about, hey, I don't even have a husband. So how am I going to get pregnant? I mean, that's, that's as impossible as it can be. And the angel Gabriel replies to Mary by echoing the words the Lord made to Sarah as we read in Luke 1.37 where the angel says, for nothing will be impossible with God. It's the same God. He will do what is wonderful, what is extraordinary, what is surpassing, What is the impossible? And this baby boy, born through the Virgin Mary, was the Son of God in human form, Jesus Christ. And you know, as he lived on this earth, there was nothing in his external form that people would think 
oh, this is the great king of kings, the Lord of all the universe, walking on the earth. They didn't care much about him. In fact, even on the cross, when he was dying on the cross for the sin of his people, people made fun of him, saying, this is the great king who will save his people. And yet, it was the very act of dying, where Jesus was dying, bearing the judgment of God for the sin of his people, that Jesus would do the impossible. Where he would pay the full price for the sin of his people. Where he would defeat death and Satan and rise from the dead on the third day, providing a way for sinners like you and me to be brought into close, intimate relationship with God. And now because of what Jesus has done, this free gift of salvation is available for all those who will turn to him. If you're not a Christian this morning, let me tell you, yes, this free gift of salvation is here for you. It is a free gift. There is nothing that you have to do rather than come to Jesus and trust in him and then turn away from your sin and continue to follow him. But there's nothing you have to do. You know, sometimes for some people, why this whole thing about following Jesus, why for them it seems so unbelievable, is that Man doesn't have to do anything. You know, if you told somebody, oh, climb that mountain, walk through fire, do that, do this, and you will be saved, many would do that. But when you tell them, no, Jesus has done it all, you simply come to him and trust in him, trust in his finished work. And if you do believe, then turn away from him, turn away from your sin and continue to follow him. Like, Oh, you've got to be kidding me. You can't just tell me, I, you know, there's nothing I need to do. That's, that's unbelievable. But that is exactly what God has done. He has done the impossible. He has done it all through Jesus Christ. You simply have to come to him and trust in him. And if you do trust in him, I would tell you today to turn from your sin and to continue to follow hard after him because that's the evidence that you truly are a friend of Jesus. If you'd like to know more about what it means to follow Jesus, please come and talk to me after the service. I'd love to speak to you. Or perhaps somebody sitting next to you who is a Christian, I'm sure they would love to speak to you about what it means to follow Jesus. But in closing, let me just say this. The application from the second point is not God is the God of impossible and just apply it willy-nilly to any situation in your life. You know, I've got this issue, God is the God of impossible, so he's going to turn it around. God is the God of impossible, so he will do this. God is the God of impossible, so he'll give me a better job, a a, a better family life, a a spouse, or a child, or whatever it is. That is not the application. 
Please, I do not want you to leave from here thinking that is the application. What I do want you to think of is this. That if you are a Christian, you are a friend of God, you are a friend of Jesus. And that means you can bring your every care to him. Every single one of them. Because he is one who cares for you. He's one who loves you. But then beyond that, because he loves you and cares for you so much, he will only do what is good for you. Sometimes you might not like it, but it is ultimately for your good and for his glory. And I want you to understand that. Can he turn the most impossible situations around? Yes, he can. But the Bible does not guarantee that in every situation of your particular instance that will happen. He may choose to do so if he thinks that's the, the most best thing for you. And that's the best thing that will bring him glory. But otherwise he may not. But the greater application is that God has revealed his promises to us in his word. And every one of them that he has promised in his word, as impossible as it may seem, he will bring it to fulfillment. And understand that in a context where you know that this is the God who is in close relationship with you, who cares for you, and he will bring it all to pass. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your kindness and your goodness and your grace. Oh, that you would condescend towards sinners like us. Oh, that you would draw near to us. That you would know us and you would give us the privilege to know you. We thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ for revealing yourself to us through him. And we pray, Lord, that as we live this life on this earth, we would live, therefore, to know you more and to make much of Jesus, believing and trusting in your every promise that everything that you have promised in your word will come to pass, even if not every circumstance in our life right now may be overturned. Help us to love you and to trust you for Jesus' name's sake we pray. Amen.